Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information. From the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic Drive Time. With Joe McLean and Emily Alcaraz. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. Keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's so good to be on with you this morning. Praise be to Jesus Christ. How was your day? Have you uh, got the coffee out already? Is that going? You know, uh, as a kid, I didn't really have an attraction to coffee, but as an adult, I drink it by the gallon. <laughs> I don't know how much you're drinking, but I don't know if that's a problem or not, but maybe it is. But uh, love the smell of coffee in the morning, as they say. We have a great program lined up for you this hour. We're going to have an interesting conversation in this hour with Mary Caprio about in vitro fertilization. We, I think we were talking about this last week, this this conversation came up. There was a story. Oh, that was right. It was Adrian Fonseca. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning. How are you, Joe? It was you. You brought up a story about in vitro that we said, you know, we need to have a guest on that uh, explains in vitro fertilization to us and why the Catholic Church says it's intrinsically evil. So it's all your fault that we're doing this today, Adrian. Oh, no problem. Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, uh, Mary Caprio, who is a, uh, a fellow uh, with the John Paul II Foundation and an adjunct faculty member at the University of St. Thomas, and she is uh, an expert on this topic, and she's going to help enlighten us as to what it is and why, in fact, the church does teach that IVF, or in vitro fertilization, is intrinsically evil. That's the conversation in this hour. But we're going to have uh, lots of breaking news and stories as well with uh, Emily Alcaraz. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Joe. I'm really excited for today. This is a really sensitive and tricky topic. So For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So we'll have that conversation. It was Kevin Wells' wife. Uh, that was uh, wanting in IVF that uh, led to a, a, a powerful moment in their own marriage that we talked to him. That's what it was. It was last week. We were mm. talking to Kevin about his book and his ministry with uh, uh, World Villages for Children that started that conversation. So we'll finish that conversation with some expert uh, information from Mary Caprio in this hour. So I'm looking forward to that. We'll have Saint of the Day plus Gospel of the Day. Well, in the What's Concerning Us segment coming up after that, uh, we'll have Brie Dale on. She is the uh, friend of the show. She is a, a journalist out of Rome. She works for Newsmax and uh, and other outlets, including EWTN on occasion, even Church Militant. She's going to talk about the story of Cardinal Petro Perlin, uh, who is at the center of the London deal that went bad. Plus, she's going to update us on a movement of uh, small businesses throughout Italy that are opposing the lockdown in an effort to fight for survival. So we'll get the latest information from her in the uh, What's Concerning Us section. So there's a lot on the agenda today. In the next hour, if you're able at all to join us in the next hour, we sure would love to have you. Father Char- Charles Connor will be our conversation in the next hour. We're going to talk about his latest book, Toil and Transcendence, Catholicism in the 20th Century, The Growth of the Catholic Church church post-Civil War was massive. I mean, literally massive. So we'll have a conversation with him in the next hour if you're able to join us. But let's get this hour going. Let's bring our prayers to Our Lady. Whatever your intentions are, my dear listener, I'm including those in this prayer. I'm also praying for my own family. I'm praying for our equipment today, our team here, our radio apostolates, Stations of the Cross and Guadalupe Radio Network for all of our listeners. And uh, let's ask Our Lady to whisper these intentions into the ear of her son that we may be drawn ever so more closely into his most sacred heart. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. 
Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear, and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And now the headlines with Emily Alcarez. Vice President Mike Pence has rejected the calls to invoke the 25th Amendment against President Donald Trump. Pence wrote a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying that taking such a course of action is not in the best interest of the nation. An impeachment vote in the House of Representatives is expected today. The president has now been blocked from Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube after continuing to claim that the election was stolen from him. The remains of over 2,000 babies were found in the garage of an Indiana abortionist. Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill announced on Wednesday that he had completed the investigation of Dr. Ulrich Klopfer, who died in 2019. Klopfer was known for being a prolific abortionist, at times the only one in Indiana. During protests at his clinics in 1993, police admonished him for shoving protesters, and news reports at the time said that officers rejected his suggestion to pour acid in protesters' eyes. All three clinics that Klopfer oversaw have now been closed. The remains of the 2,000 children found in his home were given a dignified burial by local officials. The U.S. will begin requiring proof of a negative COVID test for international travelers. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention could issue the order as soon as Tuesday, following weeks of discussions among federal agencies and the White House Coronavirus Task Force. It would reportedly go into effect by the end of the month, January 26th, six days into the Biden administration. The move follows the Trump administration's action last month requiring a negative coronavirus test from travelers hailing from the United Kingdom following the emergence of a variant coronavirus strain that is reportedly more transmissible. The mutated strain has been found in the U.S., although officials do not believe it causes a more severe illness. The Vatican Secretary of State is under investigation in connection with the controversial London property deal. A letter by Cardinal Pietro Parolin leaked to an Italian news outlet shows that the Secretariat of State was aware and approved at its highest ranks of the disgraced purchase of a luxury real estate property in London, now at the center of a Vatican investigation. The Italian newspaper Domani published on January 10th a letter addressed by Cardinal Parolin, Vatican Secretary of State, to the president of the Vatican Bank. In the letter, Perlin asked the Vatican Bank to loan 150 million euro to the Vatican Secretariat of State. The Secretariat of State needed the money to pay off the loan they contracted to buy out the shares of the real estate in London. One year and three months after the search and seizures in the Secretariat of State, the Vatican investigation has led to no indictments, but also no decisions not to prosecute. I'm Emily Alcaraz, and these are your Wednesday morning headlines through a Catholic lens. Praise be to Jesus Christ in all things. Saint Blessed, or rather, Blessed Veronica of Milan. Pray for us. Born in 1445 at a small village just outside of Milan, she grew up in a poor peasant family. Uh, She did her chores. She worked in the fields. Uh, She tried briefly to teach herself how to read and write, but she was unsuccessful at that, but... Uh, at a very early age, she began to receive these religious ecstasies, these visions of the life of Christ. In fact, she received private apparitions and revelations from Our Lady, the Virgin of Heaven. And uh, it was Our Lady who 
catechized her with three mystical letters. One that signified purity of intention, the second abhorrence of complaining, and the third a reminder to daily meditate upon the passion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. She wanted to join the Augustinian order. She became a lay sister uh, at the age of 22 at the convent at St. Martha in Milan. But uh, she was not able to join for about another three years because she had uh, to study, to learn, to, uh, to study and read and write. Which she did. Now, she did uh, go out into the towns and she begged for alms, which helped to support the life. But she get, began to have physical uh, pain, very intense pain on and off. And then, of course, the religious ecstasies went on for, for years, in fact. In 1494, she received a, a vision of Christ and she was given a very particular and special message meant only for Pope Alexander VI, which she made a journey to Rome to deliver. Now, I would love to tell you what that message was, but I don't actually know because uh, Pope Al Alexander VI He's not a great pope, okay? So I would love to know what that private message was for that pope. It would be illuminating, but I'll maybe have to do more research there. Following a six-month illness, she died on the very day that she had prophesied she would die, the 13th of January, 1497 in Milan. Uh, it was Pope Benedict XIV in 1749 that added her to the Roman martyrology, or to the canon, at any rate. Uh, Say our blessed Veronica of Milan, pray for us. The gospel comes to us from Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. On leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. He approached, grasped her hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she waited on them. When it was evening after sunset, they brought to him all who were ill or possessed by demons. The whole town was gathered at the door. He cured many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons, not permitting them to speak because they knew him. Rising very early before dawn, he left and went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon and those who were with him pursued him, and on finding him said, Everyone is looking for you. He told them, Let us go on to the nearby villages, that I may preach there also. For this purpose have I come. So he went into their synagogues, preaching and driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to Jesus Christ in all things. Uh, a couple of points here. Um, I love the fact that you see this little detail that sort of, you gloss over it. They they waited until after sunset before they brought out the possessed and the sick and those that were needing a, a of healing, right? Well, that's because this is the synagogue. This is the the Sabbath day here. He had left synagogue, and they're not. He's not allowed to heal people until after the sun goes down. Uh, we'll see that sort of. I think it was in Luke's gospel where he heals the man with the withered hand, and he sort of challenges the Pharisees there about the the, the ability to heal on the Sabbath day. Well, here the people don't even bother to show up to the doorstep until after the sunset goes down. Although Jesus had already healed the mother-in-law uh, by that point. 
So I, th- I found that very fascinating. And of course, as we said yesterday, we see Jesus casting out demons and then forbidding the demons to even speak about it because he would not want a testimony from the mouth of a demon, right? Um, now, it's fascinating because Augustine speculates on how much the demons knew or didn't know. They certainly knew something. Uh, they knew, but maybe they didn't know everything. That was Augustine in the commentary today. Uh, so I found that very fascinating uh, that Jesus uh, has this wonderful uh, opportunity to have testimony preached about him, even from the demons, and he forbids it. Because, as St. Chrysostom said yesterday, we don't trust ourselves to demons at all for any reason. Uh, Adrian, Emily, what do, you, what do you guys got? There's just so much to unpack in this reading. Of course, there's the there's the story of the mother-in-law who was sick with a fever. There's the demons. And then what the part that I really meditated on was the end where Christ went off in the desert to pray. So there's this painting that I love. It's actually uh, one of my favorite paintings. It's called Christ in the Desert by Ivan Kramskoy. And it shows Christ like in the solitary position out. He looks very somber, very solemn, and he's praying. And it just it's incredible because Jesus is God. He had no need of prayer. And yet he went out primarily to show us, to show his disciples what we are supposed to do. And so he showed them that prayer, the interior life, comes before everything. And if you've read, there's this fantastic book called The Soul of the Apostolate. It was Pope Pius X's favorite book. Um, it, it it expands on the, on the fact that without the interior life, without beginning everything with prayer, our exterior acts, even if they're acts of charity and of service, are useless because they're not coming from the right place. So here, I, I love that Christ is showing us that the prayer and the interior life comes first. Adrian, do you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, so the one thing that I wanted to talk about, normally I try to go to Aquinas and Alapide, but today I'm going to go to the visions of Venerable Mary of Agreda. Uh, she talked a lot about how the demons, whenever they were, um, when they would manifest, they weren't certain that our Lord was the Messiah. They had suspicions. They weren't certain though. And so they would test our Lord. They would t- constantly do things to chide him and to see, is this actually the son of God? Cause they were also quite stunned by the fact that, uh, God would, uh, turn and would, would, come in the form of man mm. and so that was uh, shocking to them and so they were not certain that it was son of god that it was actually god himself uh so they would constantly test him and in order to prevent other people from going to demons for truth because even though the demons do have some truth uh you should not go to them for truth they uh our lord silences them and doesn't allow them to speak Amen to that. Uh, also, Jesus rises early on Sunday morning, a foreshadowing of the Holy Mass. I think so. Uh, but praise be to Jesus Christ. Don't go anywhere. We're going to go to break. We're going to come back in the What's Concerning Us segment. Bree A. Dale, our friend of the show, is going to be on to update us about the story coming out of the Vatican scandal, the uh, Cardinal Parallel story. So don't go anywhere. More Catholic Drive Time is coming your way. I once had a gentleman come up to me and say he didn't think the principle of non-contradiction was true, that perhaps something could be and not be in the same respect at the same place and time. Now, skepticism doesn't get any more radical than this. The principle of non-contradiction is the principle upon which all human knowledge is based. So how do we defend it? It's pretty simple. A skeptic can only speak against the principle if his words have the intended meaning and not the opposite. For example, if a skeptic says the principle is false, well, then he must intend the statement to mean what it expresses and not the opposite, namely the principle is true. 
but this presupposes the principle and thus undermines his attempt to deny it. So a skeptic can't deny the principle of non-contradiction without ending in self-defeat. I'm Carlo Broussard with a ready reason for Catholic Answers, Catholic.com. The universe is filled with order from top to bottom. And it's a beautiful order, and not only is it beautiful, it's order that we can actually comprehend. And it's almost as if we have been made to be able to comprehend that order in the universe, to be able to contemplate it so that we can see maybe that purpose behind it. Please visit Father Spitzer's website, magiscenter.com, to watch this beautiful and important video about purpose and God's creation. That's magiscenter.com. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's good to be on with you this morning. Before we jump on with Bree Dale here in one second, I wanted to mention a couple of stories. Uh, there's a, a gruesome story out of Indiana. Uh, an abortion doctor passed away back in September. And as they were cleaning out his garage or his barn and his car, they discovered the remains of over 2,000 aborted babies uh, stored in his vehicle and in his barn. And it's just a gruesome situation. And that's a common story among abortionists, unfortunately, too common in the United States. So let's uh, continue to pray. Pray for the conversion of those working in that uh, in that field, um, and let's pray for the lives lost. Keep them in our prayers today. But also, there's a good story out of the Supreme Court: college that risk that restricted campus free speech is liable for damages, even if they drop the policy, according to the Supreme Court. Uh, we'll link to those stories over on our live video feed: facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. But joining us right now by Zoom, all the way from Rome, uh, our friend of the show is Bree Dale. Good morning to you, Bree. Good morning. How are you? Praise God, I'm alive. How are you? Good. Accounts, right? <laughs> doing well. It's sunny out. Yeah, it's sunny out today in Rome, so uh, doing really well. And I heard good breaking news this morning. The uh, the very, let's just say, air quotes, interesting, unquote, uh, nativity display in St. Peter's was taken down quietly. <laughs> uh, so I give God praise for that. Praise Jesus. I, you know, it's, it's funny because I was walking by while they started to back the truck up, and I spoke to uh, one of the carabinieri that was uh, there. And I asked him um, in Italian whether or not the. I think we're losing Bree. Bree, is your internet uh, acting up on us this morning? <laughs> I think your your internet was uh, flaking Sorry. out us on a little bit there. But uh, oh no, you you were saying to the uh, you were saying to the gentleman standing there. Uh, we we lost you at that point. You want to try one more time? Uh, I'm sorry. Yes, the carabinieri. It was the carabinieri. It was a police officer who was standing there, and I asked him directly whether or not the uh, Persepio was going away, and he said uh, <laughs> he said yes with a very large smile on his face. <laughs> uh, yeah, every time you get to the punchline, the internet cuts out. So I, I don't, we're going to oh, leave it at no. that. Uh, but the good oh, news, no. it's not coming back. Praise be to Jesus. Okay, let's no. try to transition here. There's uh, a couple of stories that I wanted you to comment on. The Cardinal Perlin story uh, being at the center of the London flat deal that went flat, you know, basically taking donor dollars from around the world and investing into this property in London uh, to create... Uh, I, don't, I guess assets for the Vatican, I, but it didn't go well, and it seems to be uh, a misuse of donor dollars. What say you, Bree Dale? What's the story? Yeah, yes, you know, I think what, um, and please let me know and cut me in if, if my internet goes away because this is a really important story. Um, 
you know, Cardinal Perelin was was interviewed, um, and it was in, in an interview that was really not covered at all by La Stampa uh, a few months ago, uh, wherein he claims that he was, uh, you know, when he was transferred off uh, oversight of the Vatican Bank by Pope Francis, that that was just a normal thing. But now we are starting to see that that was likely not the case. That Pope Francis uh, was uh, keyed into the fact that uh, Cardinal Perelin was aware of uh, the dealings of the London property and other dealings as well. And um, he personally signed off uh, or requested 150 million euros to try to bail out this London property, which he said was a, was a good investment. This was in his own hand. Uh, so uh, no word from Cardinal Perelin on that. Wow. He thought it was a good deal. <laughs> um, <laughs> the use of donor dollars to buy flats in, in London. How could that be a good deal? I mean, uh, we were talked to we talked to Edward Penton yesterday about the Vatican scandal. And uh, one of the things I found interesting in that conversation was um, they don't deny that money did, fl- like, for instance, uh, sort of switching gears a little bit, but tangentially related. Mm-hmm. They don't deny transferring money to Australia. They just they just uh, argue about the total amount. Uh, the uh, newspaper in Australia right. claimed w- over a billion, and uh, the Vatican authorities didn't say how much, but they didn't say they didn't do it either. So um, what do you make of all of these financial sh- uh, shenanigans out of the Vatican? Well, I think it's kind of a black eye for the Australian and others um, to not have been able to really nail down whether or not those sums were final. Um, but it does look like right now they're scrambling to try to figure that out. Um, and, uh, you know, with with any kind of transfer of large sums, especially at this time with financial scandal, one would think it would be in the best interest of the Vatican to be as transparent as possible. And I think Pope Francis is looking at trying to do that through his uh, centralization and his uh Liquid, you know, the liquidation of uh, assets under APSA, but APSA has had a real issue, and you know, APSA being the apostolic um, oversight of uh, of all property in uh, the Vatican or all Vatican property. But as we see, we have a London property that was created by the Secretary of State, um, and, and that's part of the discovery, I guess. But uh, what else is out there that hasn't been focused on? I mean. Um, Ed Penton and CNA both have been really focused on those areas mm. and uh, discovered uh, the Peters Pence uh, scandals. But what else is out there? And I think that's a question that has to be asked of all journalists who are based here in Rome and elsewhere who are focused on the Vatican is, um, you know, there are so many different angles, not just one or two outlets uh, should be covering this. So many uh, journalists should be beating feet on the ground, finding um, other angles to report on, and not just negative. There are also some amazing projects that are not being covered um, adequately because in the church because of all of these scandals. So it's really doing damage for both sides. I, I wonder, is it possible for the Vatican to rebuild confidence and trust from the lay faithful around the world to want to send money back towards Peter's Pence? I mean, we've seen uh, several instances where the money is being used for nefarious uh, reasons and not for corporate works of mercy. Do you think it might be possible we could see a day where we, we get back to the feeling of confidence? Honestly, this is this is something that I've been assessing over the last two years um, with the financial scandals, coupled with the lack of transparency on the Vatican deal with uh, China, for example. 
um, with the with the issue of transparency with regards to the sex abuse scandals, um, with what we've been hearing from uh, within uh, the United States, the selling off of Vatican or uh, church property mm. um, and even parishes uh, for for funds. Um, I think people now are have come to the conclusion Americans are extremely extremely generous. Um, in in their donations in their ties, I think people now are coming to the conclusion that their ties must be tied to specific um, uh, religious organizations that that have transparency. So uh, myself included, I, I tie directly to Nazarene.org, um, which is an amazing um, nonprofit that gives microloans to people uh, Christians in the Middle East, uh, and not just Christians, but suffering um, minorities in, in in the Middle East and. Um, is very transparent and open. Um, and I think people are also getting very frustrated about the inflammatory attitudes of um, many individuals in um, the media. I mean, we saw this over you know the past week with like mm. the Vatican blackout deal and some of the disinformation that was being pushed by certain members in the media and certain um, figures in, in Catholic world. And I think we have to be really careful at this time to question whether or not that is financially based or uh, ideologically based at this time as we start to see more and more um, corruption being uncovered. We're speaking with Bree A. Dale, an independent journalist based in Rome, working uh, for several outlets, Newsmax, uh, National Catholic Register on occasion, Church Militant and others, about the Vatican scandal. I want to switch gears a little bit. We have about uh, four, four and a half minutes, five minutes left in our conversation with you, Bree. And uh, I want to talk about the lockdown situation in Europe. You know, yet last night, uh, our priest was over at the house uh, with the epiphany blessing of our house. It was beautiful, by the way. And uh, we were having a chat afterwards, and I was asking about, uh, you know, how he's doing, how he's feeling. And he's from Canada. And I asked him if he was able to get home at all. And he says, no, he's not been able to get home because it's completely locked down. Uh, the borders closed between Canada and America. And if you go to, he's from Ontario, the province of Ontario. If you go to Ontario, he said you will be required to quarantine for 14 days, irregardless of a, a negative test on COVID, by the way. You could have a negative test and still you have to stay in a hotel for 14 days. And he says, and if you try to leave, they will fine you or put you in jail. And this morning I saw, uh, it's funny because I came in this morning to check the news and I saw an article to that very point out of LifeSide News making that same uh, case that in lockdown mode in Ontario, they're threatening jail time for people who are leaving their homes. Um, what is it like in, in Europe and in, in Italy where you are with these lockdowns? Is it this level or, or what is life like there? Well, um, in certain countries, it certainly is quite strict. We know about that in the UK and in Germany. Um, I was told by someone who had just uh, transferred through the Netherlands that even though they just landed in the Netherlands and were deplaning and planning into another um, into another plane, they weren't even saying there that in the Netherlands um, required everybody entering the country to be tested um, in, with a certain test. So it definitely is um, intense. Uh, but I could say happily that um, there is starting to seem uh, a bit of a return to normal. Now, there was a, an announcement by the Italian government that they're extending their emergency measures uh, in uh, for COVID. And I think that has to do with like financial and also, you know, some of the um, restrictions that they do apply um, uh, until April. Um, but there were some false reports coming out saying that um, the, in, the Italian um, population would be continued to do lockdown 
um, in the ways that they were doing lockdown uh, over Christmas and New Year's, uh, which caused some people to panic. And that simply was not the case. So I think people have to just be aware right now. It's because of the lack of, uh, of real solid communication platforms. People are getting a lot of uh, misinformation. And, um, you know, you said, I think, on the show yesterday that you go to multiple um, outlets mm. uh, to to verify. Um, and unfortunately, people say, oh, how can I do that? I'm not a journalist. How do I know what's news and what's not? <laughs> I would just say, like keep yourself balanced and try to use your critical thinking during this time, especially like the elements of the critical thinking. So if you hear, hear something like the Vatican had a blackout, there was shots fired and the, the, the Pope yeah. was yeah. Uh, arrested. You have to ask yourself who has the authority to arrest a sovereign of a right. sovereign state, right. uh, you yeah. know, and then um, shots fired. Uh, how, you know, was that really bad or could it have been something else? Uh, and I, I tried to post too. Joe, that that was those were fireworks that are often set off by sweet, uh, street sweepers here in, in Rome because we have an issue with um, seagulls and starlings around St. Peter's Square and they do make a mess. And so that's <laughs> one of the ways they try to get oh. rid of them. So. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't yeah. pass the smell <laughs> test. It really didn't. No. I mean, uh, blackouts, you know, I, I honestly thought, we'll wake up, there'll be a news story that says, in order to say to, to make the Vatican more green, we shut the lights off yeah. at night. You know, <laughs> I expected that headline. Uh, I, you know, but it, I mean, the, you really believe the Swiss Guard are going to let people walk in there and just yeah, arrest no, the Pope. I mean, yeah, not, it's exactly, not passing the no, smell and, test. Now, and also, um, there wasn't a blackout. Uh, I know that there were some individuals who claimed that they spoke with people on the ground. Um, I literally live next door to the Vatican, and my neighbor went over when he started getting pinged uh, <laughs> by his American friends, and he actually took pictures during that time. It, it, the, the camera that's being used is really poor, has poor contrast at night. Um, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, but you can find other live streams that were showing that there was no change. All right. Well, Bree Adale, thank you for joining us and giving us the latest information. God bless you and God love you, and uh, we'll see you next time. But don't go anywhere, dear audience. Uh, stick around. We're going to have a great conversation with Mary Caprio about in vitro fertilization, why the church teaches it's intrinsically evil, plus more breaking news and stories with Emily Alcaraz. All that coming up next on Catholic Drive Time. We'll be right back. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. How many times have you heard someone say that they don't like the Catholic Church because it's so dogmatic? Well, G.K. Chesterton says, You cannot live without dogmas. You cannot act for 24 hours without making a decision based on some deeply held belief that you cannot prove. Man can be defined as an animal that makes dogmas. Trees have no dogmas. Turnips are singularly broad-minded. In truth, there are only two kinds of people. Those who accept dogmas and know it, and those who accept dogmas and don't know it. So when someone objects to the Catholic Church for being too dogmatic, it only means that they are dogmatic against it, even though they have no idea what their own dogmas are. Want more than a minute? Visit us at chesterton.org. Looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium? Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the University of Dallas offers an exceptional liberal arts education, preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. 
academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's so good to be on with you. Uh, I want to just mention that uh, we've, we've started the process of posting the individual highlight clips of conversations and parts of the show to our a Rumble uh, page. So it's a brand new opportunity for us to make sure that we don't get censored quite as often. So if you are at all able, check us out on Rumble. Just search for Catholic Drive Time. But I want to say you can go to rumble.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. But anyway, search for us there. Make sure you subscribe. And if you want to watch or you want to be part of the live video feed, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube. We're all, we are on those platforms. Plus, we post the audio podcast of this show over on our website, grnonline.com forward slash CDT. But whatever you do, be sure to stay plugged into your local Catholic radio apostolate, Stations of the Cross, Guadalupe Radio Network, Download their apps. It's super important, especially in this uh, age of censorship. But without uh, saying any more, let's dive into the breaking news and stories with Emily Alcarez. The Supreme Court has blocked mail delivery of abortion pills during the pandemic. On Tuesday, the court reinstated a requirement that women must visit a hospital or clinic to obtain a drug used for medication-induced abortions lifting an order by a lower court allowing the drug to be mailed or delivered as a safety measure during the coronavirus pandemic. The abortion pill is designed to kill babies during the first 10 weeks of pregnancy, but without seeing the mother in person for an ultrasound, an abortionist could potentially dispense the pills to women farther along in pregnancy than just 10 weeks. This restriction on abortion pills is expected to be shot down under the incoming Biden administration. Under a new stay-at-home order, people in Ontario can be fined and prosecuted for leaving home for non-essential activities. According to a news release announcing the second state of emergency, the order is aimed at limiting people's mobility and reducing the number of daily contacts. These new measures include allowing law enforcement to issue tickets to those who breach the order and disperse crowds larger than five people if they're not part of the same household. Penalties for violating the new 28-day stay-at-home order could include up to a year in jail. A Roman court has ordered the return of cash found at a suspended Vatican official's home. <clears throat> Fabrizio Tirabassi was a lay official at the Secretariat of State until his suspension, together with four other employees in 2019. According to sources close to the Secretariat for the Economy, Tirabassi oversaw several financial transactions at the Secretariat, which are now under investigation. A search of his home reportedly uncovered bundles of banknotes amounting to 600,000 euros. The Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments has released new guidelines for Ash Wednesday this year. Because of the COVID pandemic, the formula for distributing ashes has changed. Priests are instructed to say the formula only once to the entire congregation rather than individually to each person. Ashes would then be sprinkled over the head of each person without saying anything. The note from the Vatican has been signed off on by Cardinal Robert Seurat. I'm Emily Alcaraz and these are your Wednesday morning headlines through a Catholic lens. 
Praise be to Jesus Christ in all things. Thank you, Emily, for keeping us up to date. Uh, Mary Caprio is joining us right now by Zoom chat. She is the adjunct faculty uh, at University of St. Thomas in theology and is an associate fellow at the St. John Paul II Foundation, certified in fertility care as a fertility care practitioner for the Creighton Model System. Uh, also, she attended the University of uh, Texas uh, for her undergraduate degree in nursing, Loyola University in Chicago for her master's degree in nursing, Franciscan University of Steubenville for her master's in theology, and the John Paul Institute in Washington, D.C. for her master's in theological studies with an emphasis on bioethics, marriage, and family, obtained her certification in fertility care through the Pope Paul VI Institute in 2013 and in 2019 received a certification in bioethics for the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Uh, so, that's a mouthful, Mary. Good morning to you, and uh, thanks for being a part of the program. Good morning, and Happy New Year. It's great to see you. Yeah, praise be to God. You look very nice. Uh, if anybody can hang out with us on the live video streams, you'll be able to see uh, Mary Caprio and the team here. It's uh, it's really good to have you on, Mary. But uh, the conversation, I think, is an important one. It came up last week. Uh, we had a guest on the program, and it was a big part of their journey uh, where they weren't able to get pregnant, and the wife really wanted IVF. The husband was conflicted. Uh, they He got his uncle, the priest, involved and, and had to do the difficult task of explaining why the church teaches that IVF is actually intrinsically intrinsically evil. And I know to a lot of people who struggle with fertility, that probably feels like a punch in the gut. It feels shocking. You're taking the one thing we have away from us to be able to have children. I thought you're supposed to be pro-life. So I, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we had a, a guest on who, who could... Uh, Tell us, why does the church teach that IBF is is intrinsically evil? And maybe give us some alternatives. Mary Caprio. Sure, I'm happy to do that. I mean, I think first and foremost, what you have described really is um, a beautiful desire on the part of couples, right? To to have a child, to have a baby. It's it, what it's what marriage is for, um, you know, and God has has blessed that abundantly. And so the desire is a good one. Um, but it matters how we actually... Um, move through and achieve that desire, right? So um, the end does not justify the means. Mm. So although the the object is good, um, the methodology by which we, we move towards that goal is really important, the way we do things. And so I think it might be helpful for your listeners to actually hear what is the methodology of in vitro fertilization. And from there, then we can look at the objections because I think it becomes really clear um, why things, why IVF is seen as problematic um, to the church when you really drill down onto the steps that, that we need to take. Um, IVF is a, is a reproductive technology, as I said. In the 70s, we called it test tube babies. And I think that's actually a more accurate nomenclature, if you will. Um, and the culture has gotten very good at, at taking a hold of language and, um, and making it its own so that we are um, really deceived in a way. So what happens in IVF? Um, well, we need the matter um, to make what our goal is, right? And so um, we need the ova, the eggs of a woman, and we need the sperm of a man. In order for IVF to obtain the ova, the eggs of a woman, um, a process called supraovulation um, is used. And, and a woman is given large dose of doses of hormones to actually cause her body to produce multiple follicles and eggs. Um, now, normally, every month, a woman creates one follicle. 
one egg, usually. Sometimes if you're going to, you know, preparing for for possibility of twins, you might create two or three. Um, But that's more rare. In IVF, when you are hyperovulated, you actually produce upwards of 10 to 12 follicles. Mm. um, And 10 to 12 ova are produced. Um, and this is, this is not without risk, right? Um, um, these large doses of hormones um, can cause um, blood clots, can cause um, strokes. Um, the, the ova actually have to be removed via a needle biopsy guided by ultrasound. This is not a non-invasive process. A good harvesting of ova would um, bring forth about 10 to 12 ova. Um, and then those ova are um, are made available on the outside of the woman's body um, and placed into um, a place where they can be fertilized, um, usually a type of petri dish. Um, I want to mention just a couple of other possible um, complications to this hyperovulation because up to 35% of women actually experience complications from this dimension of IVF, um, ovarian cysts, rupture of ovaries, increased future fertility issues, and even the possibility of death. Um, So now we have the ova, we have the matter from the woman. Now we need the sperm. Um, And and the sperm from the man is obtained usually through masturbation um, and usually utilizing pornographic materials because Mm. the sexual act is not usually involved in this. The sperm and the egg are put together in the Petri dish, sometimes um, injected into the ova, um, and embryos are hoped for at this point. And so um, if we have 10 ova, um, we will possibly come up with 10 to 12 embryos. Um, Now, that's an important kind of piece to think about, because why would you want so many? at a time, right? Mm. Um, well, well, the reason why we want to generate so many at a time is because the process actually isn't very successful. Um, and, and so we don't want to have to go back into the woman um, to remove ova um, again and again, right? It's, it's an invasive process. It has side effects. It has problems like any surgical procedure would. Um, and so we want to have spare embryos, Um, Again, a problematic term, right? When we believe that an embryo is a person, that it has everything that it needs to become um, a mature, um, active, full, um, functioning human being. All of us um, were embryos, right? Embryos have everything that they need to be who they're created to be. Um, So now we have embryos. Um, Now those embryos are actually assessed for quality control to make sure that those embryos are actually healthy. There's level one, two, and three embryos. And and think about this. This is a microscopic being we're talking about in which we actually take um, genetic material from that little person um, and test um, the embryo um, for the quality of its cells. Um, This this actually reminds us that embryos can repair themselves. Wow. Um, And so, so we're really talking about a little person, right? Um, so there's level one, two, or three embryos. Level hold, one are very hold healthy. Hold that level- thought, Mary. I'm going to interrupt you. I'm sorry, but uh, that's that's someone's got to do the, the dirty work here. We're about to go to break. We're going to come back. We'll continue our conversation about in vitro fertilization with Mary Caprio. But uh, I think we got to the crux of the matter right there. Humans. Humans are being selected and dealt with outside of the body. It's kind of a bad thing, but we'll conversate with that more on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. Catholic Drive Time. Be right back.
Many Catholics are aware of the devotions to the two hearts, the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. The devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, shared by St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, asks that on each first Friday of the month, the faithful honor Christ's Sacred Heart by attending Holy Mass. The first Saturday of the month, Our Lady of Fatima asks that the faithful attend Holy Mass as well as go to confession, pray the rosary, and meditate for an additional 15 minutes on a mystery of the rosary in honor of her Immaculate Heart. But few have heard of the devotion to the most pure heart of Joseph. In March of 1958, St. Joseph appeared to Sister Mary Mildred Musel in Ohio. He asked that on the first Wednesday of each month, the faithful are invited to honor the most pure heart of Joseph by attending Holy Mass and by reciting the joyful mysteries of the Rosary in memory of his life with Jesus and Mary. Three Hearts Institute is consecrated to the three hearts. Join us in the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and the Most Pure Heart of Joseph, and be prepared for the blessings of the Holy Family. This has been a minute for your marriage and family from the Three Hearts Institute. Having trouble with your car radio? No worries. The Guadalupe Radio Network has just released our new version of our app. With the app, you can get a crystal clear connection of your local station no matter where you are. You can also listen to podcasts of past shows and find more ways to connect with us. Getting the new app is easy. Just search the App Store on your phone for the Guadalupe Radio Network and either download it or if you already have it, choose the update option. Happy listening. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. Keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McClain. It's so good to be on with you. Mary Caprio is our guest. We're talking about in vitro fertilization in the first uh, segment of this conversation. Uh, Mary, uh, set up what is IVF and sort of what are the mechanics of it and what's involved. And already we're starting to see the problems that are involved with IVF. But one of the reasons why we also wanted to have this conversation with you, Mary, by the way, welcome back to the show, is uh, last week another story came up on the same day we were having the conversation with Kevin Wells. Uh, it was Adrian who picked up that story. Adrian, really quickly, what was that story? It was, uh, it was an IVF-related incident. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So I saw this article and it really shocked me. It was about a woman who had just given birth to a baby who was only three years younger than her. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. That was a headline. So I reached into it and apparently the baby was conceived 27 years ago and the mother was only 29 years old. And so that means that her child is only three years younger than her in terms of conception. And so I, that's, that really struck me, and I was really shocked by it. Uh, and so that's what uh, kind of set the catalyst for me reaching out to you to book you for the show. So this was a case where we had an, uh, an actual embryo, so uh, a person con- in conception stored Frozen. in a freezer someplace and then 27 years later pulled out implanted in a surrogate and a child is born let's talk about the the morality we have about uh, 10 more minutes 11 more minutes in our conversation with you mary let's talk about the real moral implications of ivf mary caprio yeah i mean i think you know one of the huge issues with in vitro fertilization is those are those embryos that are called spare embryos right we we create 10 to 12 we insert three to five. Um, most of those embryos don't make it. I mean, IVF at its best is 50% effective in creating a live, live birth. And so 80% of embryos are destroyed. The ones that are not used are frozen through cryopreservation um, in tanks. We have over 2 million frozen embryos wow. in the United Two States. Million. Germany and Italy don't have this problem because they do insist, um, despite the fact that they allow for IVF, they they do insist that all embryos that are created are implanted 
So they don't have this um, collateral um, damage here. Um, but this is a huge issue. We have human persons that are, are frozen, um, yeah, throughout, um, throughout the United States. Um, and so, yes, frozen embryos, huge issue. It's not the only issue um, that's problematic, um, but it is a life issue, right? We're supposed to be solving this, this awful issue, issue of infertility, and yet we're creating another life issue um, with frozen embryos. Emily? Would you, would you like me to go through some of the other um, kind of objections to IVF, or do you want yeah, me to please do. on that? Yeah, so I, th I think probably the main reason why we really feel like IVF is problematic is because it undermines the meaning of the sexual gift. And I want people to hear this because the Catholic Church really reveres sexuality, and that's why it, it's reserved for marriage. It's, it's reserved um, for a stable family unit that has the... Um, ability to take care of the life of a child, the education of a child. Um, IVF says that intimate sexual self-giving between spouses is not essential to the generation of new life. It, it says the self-communication between spouses is on the sidelines. Um, and that's ridiculous. Um, how could that be, right? How could that not be central um, to the generation of new life? And I think alongside that, um, it, it says that it's okay to manufacture life um, as if it were a commodity in the laboratory. And this is really um, the denigration of, of the dignity of the human person. It, it's, it's production versus procreation. You know, procreation involves man, woman, and God. Production involves things, objects. And human persons are not objects, they're never objects. Um, human procreation requires on the part of the spouse's responsible collaboration with the fruitful love of God, says Donum Vitae. And IVF is not about collaboration with God. Um, it's, it's my project. It becomes my project. Um, and so I, I think that that, that is, is very problematic. Um, also, we talked about the fact that, you know, IVF requires masturbation on the part of a man. And mm. this is... This is always problematic, right? It's always a violation of the gift of human sexuality. And so there are unseemly sides to this project, um, which nobody really wants to talk about. Um, and then another objection, and these objections are really from the National Catholic Bioethics Center, and I, I love the way they put them out so clearly for us. The fourth objection violates the exclusivity of the couple's marriage covenant because they allow a third party the laboratory technician, a group of, of medical professionals to actually impregnate the wife, um, albeit artificially, in place of the husband. And so um, so we're replacing the marital act. Mm. Um, we're not assisting the marital act, which is what the church would, um, would encourage. There's also a risk of multiple births, which puts mom and baby at risk. Um, and there's also an elevated risk of birth defects um, for the children that come to be. I mean, big time. Um, something like six-fold increase in the possibility of, of birth defects. And so, so those are, from the top to bottom, the objections that the church has um, to in vitro fertilization. And I would hope that the next question would be, so what do we do? Yes. <laughs> or what do we do? Because it is unfair. Um, although, you know, I, I do love the idea that, um, that 
so many of John Paul II's writings have said things like, you know, nobody has the right to a child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a, a person, you know, we don't have a right to a person. That ended with slavery, please God, right? Um, and so what, what, what couples have a right to do is to really enjoy the, the beautiful gift that sexuality is, the gift of, of one to the other, and then God blesses them with a child. And then John Paul II says, you know, and if, if, if the blessing of a child isn't yours in terms of a biological child, then you're called to love more. Um, and, and how do you love more? Well, you know, adoption, um, giving a gift of, of life in another way. Mm. Um, but there are th- things that infertile couples can do medically as well to assist um, the marital act. Um, and some of those things are, are, are treating the underlying causes. You know, so many women that go to fertility clinics, they don't even try to find out the physicians, the the nurses, they don't even try to understand what is wrong um, with this couple. Infertility is not normal. Mm -hmm. Infertility is a problem and a problem that we really need to um, address. And so what's the root cause? Absolutely. Natural technology addresses that. Um, And and I'm I'm a practitioner for the Creighton Model System. Um, and the Creighton model system is the is kind of the the medical record, if you will, for Napro technology. Mm. I was wondering I what would be the what would be the morality of doing of uh, adopting frozen embryos. And uh, so I think that that's kind of the question that I was thinking because there's all these options. Like for one, we can uh, adopt a baby. Uh, for two, Napro technology. I remember hearing uh, when I first heard about Napro technology, I was talking to a friend of mine who is studying to be a veterinarian. They're like, yeah, whenever we have a dog who has like worms, things like that, most of the time we won't fix the problem. We'll just give them pain medication because they're dogs, but they're not humans. Humans, we should fix the underlying problem. Uh, so, uh, what what is the morality of uh, of adopting frozen embryos? And can you talk a little bit more about frozen about uh, Napro technology? We have about four minutes to go with Mary Caprio. Hey, thanks. Um, first of all, you know, frozen embryos, um, horrific collateral damage of in vitro fertilization. Um, is it licit to um, adopt frozen embryos? Well, the church hasn't specifically um, commented on the actual process of embryo adoption. And yet, embryo adoption um, includes in vitro fertilization. And so, um, so, you know, theologians continue to argue about this. There are wonderful theologians that think embryo adoption is something that um, is licit, that is okay to do, um, because the sin has already kind of been committed. Um, and yet, there is another sin that is is being committed with the in vitro fertilization. Um, when we do embryo um, transfer, when we actually do an embryo adoption, you have to unfreeze the embryo. I have no idea what impact that has on the human person. Mm. Um, and then we're transferring that embryo mm. into a uterus that is not their own mother's, which actually is like an organ transplant. Um, and wow. so the risks, again, are higher for loss of life. Um, and then, you know, all the other complications that are related to um, in vitro fertilization. So, I, I mean, I've heard, you know, Father Tad say, you know, he, he thinks that it is not licit. And I've heard other wonderful theologians that are very faithful to the teaching of the church saying, well, you know, maybe it's, it's not so bad. Um, I, I kind of go on the side of Father Tad, um, again, with a heavy heart. Um, trying to understand what is better. Um, and I don't think there's a great answer. 
I think um, Father Tad actually has a beautiful suggestion for couples that have frozen embryos um, in a lab. He says, you know, one of, one of a wonderful opportunity exists for you to actually establish a trust um, for those children um, so that their life will be maintained um, as long as, um, as is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, because many of these embryos are just abandoned. And then the clinic has this wow. option as, as to whether or not they should discard the embryo or again. Um, That's tragic. That is very tragic. You know, uh, Mary Caprio, as we have about a minute left uh, to, before we have to say goodbye, you know, I'm not a, I don't have a PhD. I'm not a scholar, but I do remember, you know, the ends don't justify the means. We all learn that as kids. And ultimately, I think we live in a day and an age where we begin to rationalize a lot based on our own personal wants and desires. Not to say that those, that's a bad thing to want children. That's a good thing. But at the same time, I think the ends don't justify the means here, and we must seek uh, alternatives. But uh, we're out of time. Mary Caprio, thank you for being on our program and uh, shedding some light on this difficult topic. We're very grateful to you. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. All right. God love you, and God bless you, and have a great day. Happy New Year to you. That's going to do it for Hour 1 of Catholic Drive Time. Uh, thank you, Emily and Adrian, for helping to make the show possible. Thank you to Mary Caprio for being our guest this hour, and Bree Dale for being our guest in the What's Concerning Us section. Uh, dear listener, if you're at all able to join us in the next hour, and you can do so on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time, on YouTube to search for GRN online there, uh, we're going to have not only more breaking news and stories, the Catholic Trivia Game Show, Saint of the Day, Gospel of the Day, but plus we'll have a conversation conversation with Father Charles Connor about the huge growth of the Catholic Church post-Civil War years and the implications of all of that. That's coming up in the next hour if you are able to join us. If not, join us right back here tomorrow morning for Catholic Drive Time. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time, where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. In Romans chapter 3, it says that none is righteous and that all have sinned. But the Catholic Church teaches that Mary is without sin. How can that be? Romans 3 verse 10 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Yet James 5.16 says that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If absolutely no one is righteous, then who is James talking about? Luke chapter 1 says that Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous before God. If absolutely no one is righteous, then how can that be? Is scripture contradicting itself? No, the folks who interpret Romans as saying absolutely without exception, no one is righteous, are misinterpreting that passage. They are failing to realize that the key to understanding Romans 3.10 is the phrase, it is written. Here in Romans, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, Psalm 14 to be exact. In Psalm 14, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. There is none that does good. But then that same psalm goes on to talk about the righteous. Well, if none has done good, who are the righteous people the psalm is talking about? Obviously, when the psalmist says that none is good, he is talking about the fools who say there is no God. He is not talking about absolutely everyone. Just so Paul, when he quotes from the psalm. Paul is not saying absolutely no one is righteous. If he was, then how do you explain all the Old and New Testament passages that refer to the righteous? 
In Romans 3.11, it says that no one seeks for God. Does that mean that absolutely no one is seeking God? No, to interpret it that way would be ludicrous. Just so, verse 23, which says that all have sinned. Babies haven't sinned, have they? Little children haven't sinned, have they? No, this is not an absolute. There are exceptions. So it is perfectly legitimate to say that these passages from Romans, when interpreted in context, in no way conflict with the church's teaching on Mary being without sin. A beacon of truth in a troubled world. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. Anne is a real GRN listener, so to help tell her story, we hired Open Line Monday host John Martinoni. I love listening to Catholic Radio on the GRN. Anne is a smart girl. And when I found out the GRN was raffling off a 2021 Mercedes-Benz GLA 250, I was like, where do I sign up? Getting even smarter. So I went to GRNonline.com and bought five tickets for $100. That's a stale. Celebrity voice impersonated. Drawing ends March 1st. Welcome to your Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. We love God, we ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information. From the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious, it's fun, it's your Catholic Drive Time. With Joe McLean and Emily Alcaraz. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. Keeping you informed and inspired, I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's so good to be on with you this morning. Praise be to God. How is your day? Is it going well so far? I hope so. We have a great hour lined up for you today. We're very excited. We just wrapped up a, a really informative conversation with Mary Caprio on in vitro fertilization. You can find the, uh, the, the video for just that one conversation alone later this morning, maybe early afternoon, uh, on our brand new Rumble account. So if you go to Rumble, search for Catholic Drive Time. We're posting videos there just to avoid some of the censorship issues that we're all seeing in the news these days. So check that out if you can. But in this hour, going to have a great show. Of course, Emily Alcarez is here with uh, the brand new Breaking News and Stories. Good morning to you, Emily. Good morning, Joe. How are you doing? Praise God, I'm alive. Same here. Uh, and that, Same here. That, that, that counts, right? Does that it? Counts. <laughs> it does count, praise God. Of course, Adrian's here on the uh, the Fonseca on the ones and the twos, as I like to say. Adrian, good morning to good you. Good morning. Uh, now, have you guys worked out who's going to win the game show today? I mean, I know you guys collude behind behind closed doors. You uh, secretly uh, conspire with each other who's going to win and who's going to lose. Have you figured that out? That's highly confidential, Joe. Highly confidential. Highly confidential. It cannot be proven. No. There's There is no... There's no fraud going on in the game show. I promise. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely we're actually going to count the count the votes later. <laughs> we're going to count the votes later. <laughs> uh, all right, so the game show's coming up this hour, and we have, of course, uh, I thought last week was the mega prize, but this week is truly the mega prize. Surprise. <laughs> who are talking about the car raffle? <laughs> no. Yes, that's true, too. Someone's going to get a Mercedes in March. Some lucky Catholic radio listener is going to win a Mercedes. Go to grnonline.com for the details of how you might win a brand new Mercedes. But to who's our sponsor for our Catholic trivia game show? So this week we have Tan Books giving mm. away a 20-book set of children's books on Lives of the Saints. Wow, that's coming up. Praise God. So look mm-hmm. forward to that. Uh, here's the phone number. So we, we, we have people who call in and they don't make it to the first call. So if you want to be our contestant, you got to be really got to be trigger happy on the on the calls right as we go into that that break before the game show starts. The phone number, write it down. Just be ready. 877 757 
888-914-9424. Also in this hour is Father Char- Charles Connor. Uh, now, he is the historian uh, that you will see often on EWTN. One of the books that I read in 2020 was his book on the Catholic Church during the Civil War years, which I found really fascinating. I love to read the history during the Civil War time, and I really enjoyed his book. Well, he's got a brand new book out called Toil and Transcendence, Catholicism in the 20th Century, and it's really about the growth of the Catholic Church post-Civil War. I mean, it grew huge from 4 million to 43 million uh, after the Civil War, and really the anti-Catholicism that crept up during that period as well. And so we'll have that conversation in this hour. So a lot to talk about and deal with in Catholic Drive Time this hour. So let's get started with your prayer intentions, dear listener. Whatever you need today, whatever's on your heart, we're going to take your intentions and include them. I'm praying for my family. I'm praying for our equipment, our team here, and our radio apostolate across the Guadalupe Radio Network. Let's take them to Our Lady, that she may whisper them into the ear of her Son, that he may draw us ever so more closely into his most intimate and sacred Heart, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come. Before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And now the headlines with Emily Alcarez. Vice President Mike Pence has rejected the calls to invoke the 25th Amendment against President Donald Trump. Pence wrote a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying that taking such a course of action is not in the best interest of the nation. An impeachment vote in the House of Representatives is expected today. The president has now been blocked from Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube after continuing to claim that the election was stolen from him. The remains of over 2,000 babies were found in the garage of an Indiana abortionist. The Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill announced on Wednesday that he had completed his investigation into Dr. Ulrich Klopfer, an abortionist who died in 2019. Klopfer was known for being a prolific abortionist, at times the only one in Indiana. During protests at his clinics in 93, police admonished him for shoving protesters, and news reports at the time said that officers had also rejected his suggestion to pour acid into protesters' eyes. All three clinics that Klopfer oversaw are now closed, and the remains of the 2,000 children found in his home and car were given a dignified burial by local officials. The U.S. will begin requiring proof of a negative COVID test for international travelers. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention could issue the order as soon as Tuesday, following weeks of discussions among federal agencies and the White House Coronavirus Task Force. It would reportedly go into effect by the end of this month, January 26th, six days into the Biden administration. The move follows the Trump administration's action last month requiring a negative coronavirus test from travelers hailing from the United Kingdom following the emergence of a variant coronavirus strain that is reportedly more transmissible. The mutated strain has been found in the U.S., although officials do not believe it causes a more severe illness. The Vatican Secretary of State is under investigation in connection with the controversial London property deal. A letter by Cardinal Pietro Parolin leaked to an Italian news outlet shows that the Secretary of State was aware and approved at its highest ranks 
of the disgraced purchase of a luxury real estate property in London, now at the center of a Vatican investigation. The Italian newspaper Domini published a January 10th a letter addressed by Cardinal Perlin, who is the Secretary of State, to the President of the Vatican Bank. In the letter, Cardinal Perlin asked the Vatican Bank to loan 150 million euro to the Vatican Secretary of State. The Secretariat of State needed the money to pay off the loan they contracted to buy out the shares of the real estate in London. Over one year and three months after this search and seizure in the Secretariat of State, the Vatican investigation led to no indictments, but also to no decisions not to prosecute. I'm Emily Alcaraz, and these are your Wednesday morning headlines through a Catholic lens. Praise be to Jesus Christ in all things. Blessed Veronica of Milan, pray for us. Born in 1445 in a small little town, out the village really, outside of Milan, grew up in a poor peasant family. She did her chores, she worked the fields. She did try to teach herself to read at night, but she was unsuccessful. At a very young age, she began to receive these religious ecstasies and had visions, in fact, of the life of Christ. In fact, Our Lady would appear to her on many occasions, catechizing her under three mystical letters. One that signified the purity of intention, the second of abhorrence of complaining, And the third, a reminder to daily meditate upon the passion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. She felt called to the Augustinian order and became a lay sister in at the age of 22, but she was not allowed to formally join until she was properly catechized. For three years, she had to study, and she begged for alms in the villages uh, to help support the house. Uh, But she began to suffer great bouts of pain, intense physical pain, as well as religious ecstasy for years. And again, in 1494, she received another vision of Christ and was given a very mysterious and important message for the Pope himself, Pope Alexander VI to be exact. And she made her journey on foot to Rome to deliver this message. Now, I really wish I knew what this message was because you might recall Pope Alexander VI was not the best of popes. If I'm not mistaken, he had seven children even while he was pope. So there you go. That should tell you something about the life of this man. But at any rate, uh, following six months of illness, she died on the very day that she had prophesied she would die, 13th January, 1497 there in Milan. And it was Pope Benedict XIV in 1749 who added her to the Roman canon. Uh, blessed Veronica of Milan, pray for us. The gospel comes to us from Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. On leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. He approached grasped her hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she waited on them. When it was evening after sunset, they brought to him all who were ill-possessed by demons. The whole town was gathered at the door. He cured many who were sick with various diseases, and he drove out many demons, not not permitting them to speak because they knew him. Rising early before dawn, he left and went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon and those who were with him pursued him, and on finding him said, Everyone is looking for you. He told them, Let us go on to the nearby villages, that I may preach there also. For this purpose I have come. 
So he went into their synagogues, preaching and driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, in all things. Um, I love the fact that even the fever listens to Jesus. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. even the fever is commanded to to depart and departs. But also, you notice that they they waited until sunset to bring the ill and the demon possessed. I think I said that wrongly when I read that. The ill and the demon possessed were brought after sunset. That's because this was the Sabbath day, and Jesus was technically not allowed to heal people on the Sabbath day, which you might recall from Luke's gospel, he gets into a, a sort of a, a quid pro quo with the, the scribes and the Pharisees over healing on the Sabbath day, the man with the withered hand. Uh, so he heals our, he heals, uh, Peter's mother-in-law there, but, uh, it, the people waited till the sun set and Sabbath was officially and technically over before they brought the ill and the demon possessed, which he heals them and casts out the demons. And yet again, he forbids the demons from speaking, from giving testimony to him, which begs the question, we brought this up yesterday, uh, how much did, in fact, the demons really know about Jesus? Well, it would seem they know something for sure, because they know he's the, quote, Holy One of God, unquote. But St. Augustine says he believes they didn't, they weren't allowed to know everything, that some things were held back from them, because he speculates that if they did know who, in fact, Jesus fully was, and his divine nature, then they would have not allowed him to be crucified on the cross, because that is the instrument of our salvation. So, I find that very fascinating, but then again, the the last thing I really wanted to point out was how he rises early on Sunday morning to go to a quiet place and to pray, and the disciples seek after him there. Uh, I found that fascinating, because... If that's not a foreshadowing of the Holy Mass to come on the Lord's Day, boy, I don't know what it is. Emily, Adrian, what do you have? Yeah, do you, uh, do you have anything else on the demons before I change the topic? Oh, yeah, sure. The uh, So, for the talking about the, the demonic, uh, I think it's a very interesting point because St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas points out that whenever, you, uh, whenever Mark points out the demons and says how they were silenced before they, were sp- before they spoke, uh, he points out that this is as important that Mark does this because Mark tends to tell the stories in a much shorter way. Uh, Luke goes on and on and on, and he goes, but Mark, he gets straight to the point. So the fact that he added this detail is very important because despite the fact that demons know truth, that they have truth, they are always manipulative. And so God commanded them to not speak uh, in order to make sure that people do not go to demons for information, uh, even though they can have some truth because they don't want them going to them and seeking truth because they always mix it with lies, falsehoods that are, would lead you down to hell. Yeah, the devil's a liar. The devil's yes. a liar. Um, so for me, what really stood out is I'm always fascinated by these images of Christ praying because Jesus is God. And so who does he pray to? He's already God. And if you look up, there's this beautiful painting called Christ in the Desert by Ivan Kramskoy, and it shows Christ looking very solemn, almost as though he has the weight of the world on his shoulders, praying. And of course, what he's doing is teaching us what to do. He begins his day early before dawn with prayer before he goes into the town and begins to preach and drive out demons. And so what he's showing us is that the source of all these works is the interior life. Hmm. And without the interior life, these works will be useless, even if he, he were... If we, if we were still to go out and preach without the interior life, it would be powerless and meaningless. You know, and Jesus leads the way, right? He, he points, 
uh, he shows, he, he demonstrates, he leads by example. If he's going to uh, get up early before the sun rises and go off to pray, well, you know, should we not want to I- I- imitate what our Lord has uh, has shown, has done, has demonstrated, of course, that's St. Paul's teaching, you know, and uh, so we get up, I, now, this morning, getting up early, like you and, and Adrian to do as well, and so many people, getting up early, praying, kneeling and praying before I head off to work, before I head off for the day, uh, it, it's a powerful opportunity to be in communion, to be in intimacy with the Lord, uh, our God, and uh, Jesus Christ, of course, by his very being, is totally and always intimate with the Father and the Holy Ghost all the time. but And yet, he still makes the effort to rise early and to pray. And it becomes a common practice throughout his ministry. But uh, having said that, praise be to God in all things. The game show's coming up next. And uh, so I have the questions in my hand, three awesome opportunities to win this week's Mega Prize 2.0. Uh, from uh, Tan is our is our sponsor underwriter this week for the game show prize. So if you, my dear listener, want to be a contestant, now is the time to call. I'll give you the phone number. It is 877-757-9424. First caller gets to be our contestant and uh, get opportunities to be in the prize drawing. <laughs> so call 877-757-9424. We're going to go to break. We're going to come back with our game show. We're very excited. But don't forget, later on in this hour, probably another 20 minutes from now, we'll be speaking with Father Charles Connor about his brand new book on uh, Catholic history. And uh, I, I really like Father Charles Connor. I really liked his book on the Civil War and the Catholic Church. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Pl- all that plus more breaking stories coming up on Drive Time. But the game show is next. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Can we be happy without God? Atheists say yes, we Christians say yes, but only to a certain extent. What's our reason? There are some natural human desires that can be satisfied without living for God. The desire for sensory pleasure, success, and loving relationships. There are certain desires, however, that can't be satisfied without God. For example, we don't just desire some love, we desire infinite love, love without limit. This is manifest when we get frustrated with imperfect manifestations of it. The same is true for knowledge, justice, and beauty. Since God alone is infinite in these perfections, only He can satisfy our desires for them. Therefore, to borrow from St. Augustine, without God, our hearts would be forever restless. And my friends, a restless heart is an unhappy heart. I'm Carlo Broussard with a ready reason for Catholic Answers. Catholic.com There will come a day when each of us will be asked to review the movie of our life and give an account to God. We will sorrowfully relive the bad times and joyfully revisit the good. Thankfully, no matter what you've done, there is hope. Since Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save it. So if you've been away from church for a while, we invite you to come home and find the peace that only comes from God. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org. Welcome to another round of fear and trembling. (laughs) The Catholic Trivia Game Show that helps you work out your salvation by the seat of your pants. It's a 50-50 chance and prizes are involved. Avoid the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Call now to take your shot. 877-757-9424. And now your host... 
Joe McClain. Praise be to Jesus Christ. I chuckled uh, before we went to break because I looked at the calls and the calls were already starting to come in. So uh, very grateful to everyone who calls to be a part of our game show. It's uh, it's very exciting to see the phone lines light up and it's just a lot of fun. We have a sneaky agenda here. Okay, so uh, don't tell anybody this. Let's keep this between us. But the sneaky agenda is we we teach a little bit about the faith. You learn something new. You just you didn't know this before. Now you do. Praise God for it. We have a little laugh and a chuckle while we're doing it, and we give out prizes. I think it's a winner for everyone involved. But so here's how the game show works. I have three questions, three opportunities. So if you're new to the program, you'll know what's going on. Uh, three opportunities to go into what we call the coffee cup of divine providence, which is sitting on the console in front of Emily Alcarez over there. And uh, every right question gets a chance to win the prize this week. Well, uh, I don't ask the caller the questions. The caller does not even need to know the answers to any of these questions, because I'll ask Emily, I'll ask Adrian, and the two of them have conspired secretly behind all of our backs to uh, have a right answer and a wrong answer One of them will be right. One will be wrong. The caller will have 15 seconds on the clock to decide, do they want to go with Emily? Do they want to go with Adrian? And every right answer goes into the cup for the prize, which is... Tell them what they could win, Emily. (laughs) Yeah, we did it right. (laughs) Um, The prize this week, Tan Books is giving away their Mary Fabian Wendette Lives of the Saints 20 book set. So these are uh, a 20 set of books. Uh, you can teach your children about St. Rose of Lima, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. John Vianney, St. Louis de Montfort. You got to start them young. Start them on the path to sainthood. Praise be to God. Uh, so that's the prize. That's the game. Let's go to the phones. Antonio Cruz, good morning to you. Thank you for being a part of the program. Good morning. How are you guys? Praise God. Doing great. I'm alive. How are you? Very good, sir. I'm driving. <laughs> yeah. Oh, careful, Antonio. Okay, careful. Yeah, drive carefully, Antonio. Now, where are you from, Antonio? I'm from Houston, sir. What parish you go to? Uh, St. Helen Catholic Church. How wonderful. Praise be to God. Oh, that's that, where I went to middle school. Uh, no kidding. Yep. Small world. Uh, now, Antonio, I, I, I'm taking it you understand the rules. You've probably listened to the game show before. Yes. This is my second time, sir. This is your second time. All right. Well, praise God. Uh, so you, are you ready to go? Yes, sir. I'm ready to go. All right. Emily, as is our custom, we will start with you. Are you ready? Let's do this. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Are you sure? Yes. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. Now, this is a tricky question. I'm guaranteeing a lot of people do not know the answer to this question, because I certainly didn't. Okay, here we go. The first and second books uh, of Samuel in the Old Testament are known by what other name? Hmm. The first and second books of Samuel in the Old Testament are known by what other name? Now, I know that this is a story about... Um, I'm going to go with prophets on this one. You're going to go with the, the prophets. Book of prophets? The book of prophets? The book it, of it's, prophets. It's a book about prophecy, isn't it? Uh, sounds reasonable. It, it could be. It could be. Let's see what Adrian has to say. Adrian... The, the first and second book of Samuel in the Old Testament is also known by what other name? Uh, so the books of first and second Samuel before 1957 were known as 
uh, first and second kings, and first and second kings were referred to as third and fourth kings. It's <laughs> very specific, Adrian. What was it? A Tuesday at three o'clock on, in 1957? I That's mean. possible. That's possible. <laughs> so your answer is uh, first and second kings. The kings, yes, really. It's kings. Uh, known by kings. So first and second kings is the alternative name for first and second Samuel in the Old Testament. Emily's on the hook for prophets. Adrian's on the hook for kings. 15 seconds on the clock. Who's right? Who's wrong? Antonio, what say you? Uh, I will go with Mr. Adrian. Adrian. And survey says, congratulations. You know, Adrian is a funny character. He either gets the answers, like, very specifically right, or he gets them wildly wrong. And uh, so it's it's one or the other. you got to watch out for that guy. But congratulations, Antonio. (laughs) You are in the coffee cup of divine providence for our first try. Now, what's fascinating is... Uh, I got the Douay Rames last Christmas, Christmas at the end of 2019, and uh, and I did not know until that point that uh, I was like, "Where's Where's Samuel? Samuel's gone." <laughs> oh, it's it's Kings. It's first first and second Kings. Was it? I had to learn that the hard way. All right, next question. Here we go. Here we go. Are you ready, uh, Adrian? Absolutely. Okay, another hard one here. I think I did not know this. I had to look it up. I had to cheat. But here we go. Which month is considered the month of precious blood? Hmm, the month of the precious blood. Um, I'm gonna go with, let's say November. November. I'm gonna go with November. November. On the hook for November. Uh, Emily, which month is considered the month of the precious blood? The Precious Blood devotion, is, I find really fascinating. It's kind of strange, a strange thing that Catholics do. But um, I happen to know that the devotion to the Precious Blood is celebrated in July. Really? Yes. And St. Catherine of Siena had a devotion. She's very well known for her devotion to the Precious Blood. All right. So Emily's on the hook for July. Adrian is on the hook for November. Who's right? Who's wrong? 15 seconds on the clock. Antonio Cruz, what say you? I will go with Miss Emily. Survey says, congratulations, All right. Antonio. Two for two. You're almost at a perfect game there, Antonio. You hear him? He's so happy. <laughs> no, I mean, no pressure, but this last one could really could really give you a perfect score. How, how do you feel, Antonio, so far about your chances? Oh, pretty good. Thank you very much for Mr. Adrian and Ms. Emily. <laughs> They're making yes. it, are they making it too easy on you? Should I ask them to make it a little harder? I can do that, you know. I wield the no, power. I'm learning. I'm learning right now. Thank you. Thank you very much for both of them. All right. Well, praise God. Good, Last question. Good. Emily, you're back up. Here you go. Are okay. you ready? Yes. Let's do this. Who was the first apostle? Oh, this is this is a hard one, actually. Who? What? No Googling, by the way. Don't Google. You can't Google. You're not allowed to go. That's cheap. <laughs> Who was the first apostle? So... Uh, the apostle as in the twelve apostles, not yes. not disciples. Okay, um, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Andrew on this one. Okay, all right. Uh, let's see what Adrian says. Adrian, who was the first apostle? I'm gonna go with it being a trick question, and I'm gonna go with it's actually the Virgin Mary. That's what I'm ah, going with. Mm-hmm. could be reasonable. Could be reasonable. Could I don't be know. Is it Andrew? That's Emily's choice. Is it the Blessed Virgin Mary? That's Adrian's choice. 15 seconds on the clock. Antonio Cruz, last chance. What say you? Uh, The first apostle should be the mother, so I'll go with Mr. Adrian. Survey says... 
I am oh, so sorry, Antonio. Now, it's a tricky question. Now, if you said disciple, I would totally agree. The first oh. disciple was Our Lady, for sure. I would I would agree with that. But this is the apostle among the twelve, and the first oh. guy called was in fact Saint Andrew. So uh, you were all you were so close, Antonio, to a perfect score. But you did get two chances in the coffee cup of divine providence. So your chances you. aren't that bad, really. And uh, we'll pull the name out on Friday, and hopefully, maybe if it's God's will for your life. You'll get this mega prize from Tan. One more time on this sponsorship there, Emily. Tan Books is giving away their Mary Fabian Windet Lives of the Saints 20 book set. <laughs> All right. God bless you. Stay on hold. I'm going to put you on hold so we have your information, Antonio. But God love you. Thank you for being a part of our program. Thank you. All right, praise God. That's going to do it for today's Catholic Drive Time uh, trivia show called Fear and Trembling. Dear listeners, if you want an opportunity to be in on that, you know, Antonio, he got on the phone very early. So uh, make sure you call in early tomorrow if you want. But we appreciate everyone who tried to call in today and didn't make it. Maybe tomorrow's your day. Don't go anywhere. More Catholic Drive Time coming up next. Like they do many other Marian dogmas, Protestants reject Mary as the mother of God because they don't think it's scriptural. But if there's any Marian dogma that's biblical, it's Mary the mother of God. Consider Luke 143, where Elizabeth greets Mary as the mother of my Lord. As any Bible student knows, Lord is the title that the Jews used for Yahweh. But Protestants object that Lord can also be used for an earthly ruler. Although this is true, I think the context suggests the divine usage. The three times the word is used before verse 43, verses 28, 32, and 38, and the three times it's used after verse 43, verses 46, 58, and 68, it's used in reference to Almighty God. So does the Bible teach Mary is the mother of God? You bet it does. I'm Carlo Broussard with the ready reason for Catholic Answers, Catholic.com. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. Have you ever noticed that sometimes it's hard to get along with your family? That sometimes the people in your family are downright uncongenial? Well, G.K. Chesterton says that is precisely why the family is so important. Because it is often uncongenial. Every family is filled with the same problematical people that you find everywhere else. And so... Anyone revolting against the family is simply revolting against mankind. As Chesterton says, Aunt Elizabeth is unreasonable, like mankind. Papa is excitable, like mankind. Our youngest brother is mischievous, like mankind. And so, if we can get along with our family, we can get along with anyone. Want more than a minute? Visit our website, chesterton.org. Welcome back to the Catholic Drive Time Show. I'm Emily Alcaraz, and these are your Wednesday morning headlines. Sorry. The Supreme Court has blocked mail delivery of abortion pills during the pandemic. On Tuesday, the court reinstated a requirement that women must visit a hospital or clinic to obtain a drug used for medication-induced abortions, lifting an order by a lower court allowing the drug to be mailed or delivered as a safety measure during the coronavirus pandemic. The abortion pill is designed to kill babies during the first 10 weeks of pregnancy, but without seeing the mother in person for an ultrasound, 
an abortionist could potentially dispense the pills to women farther along in pregnancy than just 10 weeks. This restriction on abortion pills is expected to be shot down under the incoming Biden administration. Under a new stay-at-home order, people in Ontario can be fined and prosecuted for leaving home for non-essential activities. According to a news release announcing the second state of emergency, the order is aimed at limiting people's mobility and reducing the number of daily contacts. These new measures include allowing law enforcement to issue tickets to those who breach the order and to disperse crowds larger than five people if they're not part of the same household. Penalties for violating the new 28-day stay-at-home order could include up to a year in jail. A Roman court has ordered the return of cash found at a suspended Vatican official's home. Fabrizio Tirabassi was a lay official at the Secretariat of State until his suspension, together with four other employees, in 2019. According to sources close to the Secretariat for the Economy, Tirabassi oversaw several financial transactions at the Secretariat, which are now under investigation. A search of his home reportedly uncovered bundles of banknotes amounting to 600,000 euros. The Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments has released new guidelines for Ash Wednesday this year. Because of the pandemic, the formula for distributing ashes has changed. Priests are instructed to say the formula only once to the entire congregation rather than individually to each person. Ashes will then be sprinkled over the head of each person without saying anything. The note from the Vatican has been signed off on by Cardinal Robert Seurat. I'm Emily Alcaraz, and these are your Wednesday morning headlines through a Catholic lens. Praise be to Jesus Christ in all things. Thank you, Emily, for keeping us updated. Uh, by the way, make sure you check out a brand new Rumble account for our Catholic Drive Time. We're posting individual conversations like the one we're about to have with Father Charles Connor uh, on that account because, you know, censorship is a thing now. So it's uh, we're, we're posting them in new places. So we're on uh, Instagram, Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're, we're still on YouTube, uh, and now the Rumble. So check us out. Look for Catholic Drive Time there. But joining us by phone is Father Charles Connor. He is the author of Toil and Transcendence, Catholicism in the 20th Century America, published by Sophia Institute Press. Good morning to you, Father Charles Connor. Good morning. How are you this morning? Praise God I'm alive. Uh, oh, that's great, huh? That counts. That counts. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <it sure does. laughs> now, one of the books that I was blessed to read in tw- 2020 was your book on the Civil War, the Catholic Church during the time of the Civil War, which I found very fascinating. It's one of my uh, uh, subjects I like to read on is the Civil War era of the United States. And, of course, the Catholic Church's involvement in that I found very fascinating. And I, I felt like you didn't pull any punches there either. You know, all, all of the warts were still there, and you didn't cover them over. I thought that was really good. So this seems like, a, a in many ways, a follow-up, this book, Toil and Transcendence, Catholicism in the 20th Century. To me, I haven't read it yet, but it feels, on the surface anyway, like a follow-up to your last book. It, was that by design? Oh, absolutely. In fact... It really, this uh, Toil and Transcendence is the, the third in a trilogy. In other words, I began, my first book was Pioneer Priests and Makeshift Altars, and that dealt with the Catholic Church in, uh, well, we started off with English Catholicism and then took the English Catholicism to the New World and talked about uh, Catholicism in colonial America and the Revolutionary Era and the early National Period and so forth. And then uh, Faith and uh, Fury, 
uh, picked it up, the Civil War book picked it up in mid-19th century, went through the war years and took it up to Reconstruction. So uh, Toil and Transcendence really takes up the story in the late 19th century uh, and uh, t- uh, goes as far as 1984. That's as, really as far as I thought, uh, I, I felt safe, if you will, going, because uh, I, I finished on a high note the opening of official uh, uh, diplomatic relations with the Vatican under Ronald Reagan's administration. Uh, at, Past 1984, you're getting closer and closer to current events, and it becomes harder for the for the historian, you know, to judge objectively without turning it into a subjective judgment. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, I, I just thought it was a good and safe place to finish. So, literally, I suppose you could say we talk about a hundred years of United States Catholic history from the 1880s until until the 1980s. <laughs> Father Charles Connor is our guest. Uh, American history, from a Catholic perspective, I think is very fascinating. Um, one of the issues was post-Civil War is the huge growth in Catholic population in America. Tell me about mm-hmm. that. What, what, what was that growth, and what were the contributing factors to uh, the Catholic growth post-Civil War? Oh, sure. Well, of course, the, the tremendous uh, Catholic growth in the United States really had its origins prior to the, you know, the post-Civil War era. You could, you could trace it back certainly to the 1840s and 1850s, and some people would even go further back than that. But uh, uh, there was a tremendous immigration, first of all, from Ireland for economic reasons, and also from Germany for more, I would say, political reasons, Bismarck's Kulturkampf and all the rest. Uh, and uh, the the Irish and the German Catholics really were the fundamental groups to build up the church in the United States. And then, as we get into the later 19th century, the post-Civil War period and so forth, uh, you have many immigrants from Italy. You have many of them from uh, from uh, Eastern uh, Eastern Europe in, in large, large numbers. So that by 1900, oh, even before 1900, well into the uh, late 19th century, you you have to talk about the Catholic Church in the United States as the as the church really of the urban dweller, you know, and uh, uh, a totally different configuration than the English Catholicism of Catholic colonial Maryland, which was a very very well to do kind of a Catholic population. They've been well to do in England. Well, this is entirely different. The immigrants had to work their way up in this country, and they had to face intense intense anti-Catholic bigotry uh, in the 19th century and all through the 20th century. And every period of this, uh, of this third book that I've just finished, uh, you know, traces in its particular period of time anti-Catholicism. So you could be talking about Grant's anti-Catholicism in the late 19th century. You could be talking about the Ku Klux Klan in the 19th century, in the uh, 1920s, rather. You could be talking about the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Supreme Court decisions of the 1950s, and, and on and on. But, you, but anti-Catholicism is always, always raising its, its very ugly head in American society, and it proves the truth of a statement that was made by... Uh, uh, an American historian by the name of Arthur Schlesinger, Sr. Sr. and Jr. were both historians by training. Jr. had some, some uh, oh, he served in some capacity in Kennedy's administration. I honestly can't think of what it was now. But anyway, this, was, this would be Schlesinger, Sr., his father. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, he said, and he's oft, oft quoted, uh, that, uh, uh, Anti-Catholicism is the deepest-seated bigotry uh, in the American people. Very interesting statement. And, you know, you see Schlesinger being proven true 
uh, in era after era. It, it comes up in different ways. Well, this is this is the kind of thing Catholics have had to uh, have had to face in the history of the United States, and, and I, I would suspect many of our Catholic people today, because the Church has come so far, because we have entered an, an, uh, an era of affluence, which hasn't necessarily been all that great for the uh, for the faith, uh, but uh, because of the era and the times in which we're living, people are probably not very inclined to think today of all of the. Uh, adversities, if you will, that our Catholic forebears in this country had to face over the various generations. So it is a story that absolutely must be told, I think, and I try to tell it in this book as I tried to in the previous two books. Uh, Father Connor, so I'm I'm actually from Chicago. So in Chicago, we still have the churches standing that were built by the Polish, Italian, German, Irish immigrants. And, uh, you know, old-timers in Chicago, when you ask them where they're from, they'll tell you their parish because the the Catholic culture is such a such a significant part of everyone's lives. But how did we go from this position of anti-Catholic prejudice when these first immigrants were arriving to a place where Catholics were influencing American culture so significantly that, that films were put out, like, such as Going My Way, The Bells of St. Mary's. Yeah. Like, we really had such a significant in- yeah. influence on the culture. How did that transition no happen? that we did. And, and really, strength of numbers had a lot to do with it because... People are, you know, while we had great adversity, people are not going to put put down, obviously. They're going to try to improve themselves. And it's the question of one generation trying to do better for their family and uh, to provide for their children and grandchildren in, in better fashion than they did. And Catholics were very economically successful. I think you can trace a lot of that, incidentally, to the immediate post-World War II era. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, as, as you recall, right after World War II, <clears throat> there was the passage of the well, rather than giving you the formal name, uh, we, we'll just call it the G.I. Bill of Rights. Uh, the, the, the veteran coming back from World War II was, was able to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, was able to uh, uh, become more highly educated than anyone in his family had up to that point, uh, you know, and uh, with, with government funding, of course. So you had this massive exodus of World War II veterans going to college, oftentimes at night, because they had to work all day, you know. But but it was it was a movement into a higher a, a higher echelon branch than our, their Catholic forebears had ever known in this country. And uh, tied in with that GI Bill of Rights, of course, was the flight to the suburbs. They wanted to create a bigger, or a better life for their children, for their grandchildren, and so forth uh, than they had experienced themselves. And w- with that uh, came uh, the entrance of the Catholics into the uh, into the cultural relativism. And as Pope Benedict used to. Say, so well, the era of the forgetfulness of God. Mm. I mean, Catholics are as much a part of that as anybody else in the country now. Uh, and, and really, you, you had the uh, uh, balancing that. You also had certainly had the diminishment of mainline Protestantism. The, the large Protestant churches, the Protestant culture that American was, began to diminish and diminish. Catholics were increasing. Protestants, I think we can probably say, because of their, you know, because of their acceptance as early as 1930, if not earlier, of contraception, uh, were, were indeed uh, you know, uh, decreasing in terms of their numbers. Uh, Catholics did not follow that secularistic trend until probably the 1970s or so, and and uh, they did it to their own detriment. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, uh, these are the kind of things, I think, that you would have to look to for uh, why Catholics uh, grew as much as they did. Now, you, you mentioned earlier, for example, the famous Bing Crosby movie. Well, we, we were doing very, very well 
but uh, that those kind of movies and so forth had to be ha- have to be seen uh, against the background in which they were made and really in the, in the era in which they were made the the uh, the catholic faith was strong it was vibrant it was tremendous the the build up of the physical plant was extraordinary the parochial school system in the united states of america was the envy of the catholic world uh, you know teaching sisters by the thousands mm. and children were taught the faith as as uh, well as, really as they have not been taught the faith since no question about that i don't think uh, so uh, uh, one one author referred and i find this very interesting he referred to the era of the, or the decade i should say the 1950s as uh, the catholic church's indian summer in the united states that was not a bad way to put things because uh, really you know it was so strong and so vibrant and i mean i I, I'm an old man now. I remember the 1950s very, very well. Grew up in it, and I remember how strong the faith was. And uh, very honestly, uh, we, when you look at oh, any time from 1965 on, 65 to 70, and into the 1970s, we find uh, uh, you know the, the the implementation of what was a glorious Vatican Council II being implemented and being put in the the hands of very, very, very misdirected individuals. <laughs> and because of that, of course, much travesty, much devastation, much exodus from the priesthood, from the religious life, and, and so forth, were the, were the extraordinarily detrimental effects. So, uh, that's, that's a long, long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're talking with Father Charles. the power structure in Chicago, but it's still very good to hear that exists. It really is. Amen. We're talking with Father Charles Connor about his book, Toil and Transcendence, Catholicism in the 20th Century America. You know, um, I, I, in my collection at the home library, I have a book by uh, Bishop John Spaulding. Uh, late eighteen, late eight, late nineteenth sure. century bishop in Maryland, yeah. and I have his book, uh, "The Church of Liberty and Culture." And the first mm-hmm. chapter of that book, you can, you can almost feel the the uh, the 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 energy that he spoke with. There was such angst in the first chapter, and the remaining chapters are more of a survey of the situation. But in the first chapter, he was just railing against the anti-Catholicism of the 19th century, in particular, the party of the know nothings attacking priests mm-hmm. and and tar and feathering and 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 uh, vandalism and all the rest, and then. I remembered, uh, I think it was from your book on the Civil War, that the Archbishop in New York, uh, Dagger John, uh, John you know, Hughes, yeah, <laughs> threatened the mayor of New York that should the Know Nothings attack any one of the parishes in his archdiocese, that uh, the Catholics would come out <laughs> to riot. Oh, did he become a second Moscow? <laughs> yeah, so. But I guess, um, and I, I want to bring that up to say, in in now in, in our more recent times and modern times, um, we've seen less and less speaking out from the hierarchy on anti-Catholicism, whether it's today or even 10, 15 years ago. We're seeing less and less of that. How do you see that from a historical perspective? Uh, is there any context there that we might be missing when we just look at the headline news and, and we ask ourselves as lay faithful, where are our bishops in all of this? Father Charles Connor. Oh, sure, sure. Well, uh, that's that's very true. And really, uh, uh, you know, you, you even think back in our own time to John Cardinal O'Connor, who was Archbishop of New York. Where, where I mean, he he resonated. For example, the pro-life movement. Uh, where where are the strength of voices 
since the era of Cardinal O'Connor. You, you just don't hear them. Uh, you know, there's been an embrace of the culture, and you, you mentioned John Lancaster Spalding. He was a very, uh, very interesting uh, figure because he, he was the first bishop of Peoria, Illinois, of course. He uh, came from an old and very, very distinguished Maryland, Kentucky family, and he was the nephew of Archbishop Martin J. Spalding of Baltimore. But uh, in any event, uh, uh, John L. Spaulding was one of the principal uh, movers behind the development of the Catholic University of America in Washington, as was Cardinal Gibbons in Baltimore, as was John Ireland in St. Paul, Minnesota, and so forth. Uh, Bishop John Keene, who later went to Richmond, would be another one. And... uh, and these men embrace the culture with such vigor, uh, you know, and such uh, uh, try to pr- prove, of course, to the country at large they were as patriotically American as all their, their counterparts. In their day, they did a wonderful service, but many of the communio-minded theologians today seem to be challenging that, that, that uh, overly enthusiastic embrace of American culture and saying, well, was it the most prudent thing? Well, those men thought it was in their era, and perhaps it's unfair to judge them by this era, but uh, uh, so much of an embrace of the culture, as, as we trace how the culture evolved decade after decade after decade, uh, may in a certain degree leave us with the, uh, you know, with the predicament we find ourselves in today. Very possible. Father Charles Connors, our guest, we're talking about his book, Toil and Transcendence, Catholicism in the 20th Century. It's published by Sophia Institute Press. By the way, we're linking to the book if you want to find that. You can go to Sophia and search for it for sure, but we put a link to the book itself on our live video feed over at facebook.com forward slash GRN online, and I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, um, I found also fascinating this reference, and again, I haven't yet read this book. Uh, I am looking forward to it, but I found a reference to... Uh, the Venerable Fulton Sheen, you know, one mm-hmm. of the greatest uh, preachers uh, in the church's history in America, for sure. Mm-hmm. And so many of us were so disappointed when his cause was uh, delayed and oh, hasn't yeah. yet moving forward. I recently obtained a wonderful relic of the Archbishop, uh, and so we, we proudly uh, have that as a part of our devotion at the house. But uh, you have he, his stories of converting people, his stories of bringing people back into the faith or into into the faith at all are are really really incredible. Uh, how did you incorporate him into this book? Well, he first of all, as far as his many converts, I, I probably should I probably should do a little bit of uh, uh, promoting here. But about twenty years ago, I wrote a book called uh, Classic Catholic Converts, uh, and it was in those it was published by Ignatius Press. I have a full a full chapter in that book, simply on the converts of Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Uh, in this book, the way I treat him, I talk a little bit about that, but you know, we're talking more about his influence in the 30s and 40s and 50s and so forth, his, his television influence. He was probably one of the strongest advocates against communism. Domestic communism was a, uh, was a very, very real threat in American society back in those days, especially when a woman by the name of Elizabeth Bentley went before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. That was the committee which eventually, under the, under the leadership, I would have to call it, of the then-Congressman Richard Nixon, convicted Algier Hiss. Uh, in any event, Elizabeth Bentley went before them and testified about all these communists who were purportedly working in the government. She incidentally became a Catholic and was received into the church by Fulton Sheen uh, many years later. But uh, his, his, his anti-communist writings, uh, which were part and parcel of his, 
of his lectures at Catholic University when he was a professor there, and also his radio addresses on the Catholic Hour in the 1930s and 1940s made a profound impact on American society. In addition to that, he was a tremendous spiritual writer. Uh, he wrote, I believe, in the neighborhood of 60 books in the course of his career, uh, and uh, he uh, addresses just about every spiritual topic that would be of interest and that would deeply affect the Catholic mind, the Catholic heart, the Catholic way of life. Uh, and and uh, so although many of those books, of course, still circulate today and are coming back into print, and thanks be to God they are, because he is still speaking so very well. He's written tremendously on the priesthood. Uh, the priest is not his own, and those mysterious priests are, are titles. And, and what I, I should tell you, too, I think that, uh, isn't this awful? I'm just pushing myself here on the show all the time, but I guess I can do that. I, I did write a book on him, The Spiritual Legacy of Archbishop Fulton Sheen, published by All the House some years ago. And I try to divvy up and... Uh, uh, really developed all the major spiritual themes prominent in Sheen's writings. Uh, the book is still in print, as I understand it. So, uh, uh, you know, that's uh, uh, one, to me anyway, a very, very interesting topic I delved into. And uh, uh, But he has tremendous relevance for Catholics today. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't praise Venerable Sheen highly enough. And, uh, you know, I certainly join with you in... in praying for the day that he is indeed beatified. We were all set to go out to the beatification, and boom, it changed yeah. overnight, you know. So extremely disappointing. It really, really was. But he'll make it someday. I feel great, much very confident. We certainly could use his prayerful intercession for our nation today, for sure. Oh, could we ever, boy. Speaking of which, uh, one of the points I found fascinating uh, was uh, that the United States didn't regularize its uh, relationship with the Holy See until 1984. I'm like, I, that surprised me. I didn't realize that. You know, going back to the, the Civil War book, um, how both the Union and the Confederates sent people to the Vatican to, you know, curry favor and, and friends, you know, so to speak, yeah, during sure. the war for both of their causes. And I think His Holiness uh, during the war actually received the uh, the bishop from the South and, uh, and I think spoke some words of favor uh, oh, indeed, he did. Part of their cause. Ninth, and he, he, he received Bishop John England from Charleston, very definitely. Uh, and they became... Uh, uh, Jefferson Davis had kept up quite a correspondence with Pope Pius IX. He had been educated, of course, by the, uh, by the Dominicans in uh, Spring... In, uh, yeah, St. Rose's in Springfield, Kentucky, as a young boy. But in any event... Um, uh, yeah, uh, well, there again, this ties in very much with anti-Catholicism as well. Roosevelt, FDR, that is, was a consummate politician who knew how to use Catholics and get the Catholic vote and so forth in his famous uh, coalition that got him reelected four times. But anyway, uh, uh, he appointed Myron uh, Taylor, who was a retired uh, chairman of United States Steel, not a Catholic, but he appointed him as a uh, an, an ambassador at large to the Vatican. He was generally he was treated with ambassadorial status, but he was not recognized as an ambassador. Uh, that that did not come, as you say, until the 1980s with Bill Wilson, who was a, a very very prominent California businessman. A, he was a convert to the faith and a great friend of Ronald Reagan's, and he uh, was appointed the first and, and confirmed by the Senate and the House and so forth. Um, uh, confirmed as our first. Uh, uh, ambassador to the Holy See. But even even there in 1984, when Wilson was confirmed, there were various Protestant groups that protested. But really, by 1984, no one was paying much attention to them anymore. 
But it was something that most administrations would probably shy away from uh, because they knew darn well there'd be an anti-Catholic backlash mm. if uh, if the Vatican received you know full diplomatic recognition recognition out of par with the uh, you know any other country in the world. So uh, that that really is, I think, uh, why the thing was held up as long as it was. We've been speaking with Father Charles Connor about his uh, his book uh, called Toil and Transcendence, Catholicism in the 20th Century America. Uh, but, you know, I learned something new in this conversation early on in our conversation today, Father. I didn't know this was one of three in a, in a series. It did make sense. Uh, but, uh, wow, I wish I would have known that ahead of time. So I've got to get the first of book in this series as well as this one. What was the title of the first in this tri- uh, this uh, trilogy? Yeah. Yeah, the, the first was titled uh, Pioneer Priests and Makeshift Altars, uh, Catholicism in Colonial America. I'll be picking that up as well as this Toil and Transcendence. All, all published by Sophia, the three of them. Mm-hmm. All published and by Sophia. distributed by EWTN Publishing, by the way. Well, wonderful. Praise be to God. We're, we posted a link to this on our live video feed today, but Father Charles Connor, we're so grateful for your time today. Thank you for being on oh, the program. It was an honor to be with you. It really was. All right. God love you and God bless you, Father Charles. And uh, have a great day. Thank you. And you as well. Dear listener, uh, thanks for being a part of our program today, Catholic Drive Time. You know, I wanted to remind you, take this opportunity as the show is coming to an end today, uh, that we are uh, starting on January the 18th. We will be uh, hosting a live uh, streamed Mass out of the chapel of Our Lady of Corpus Christi in, in Corpus Christi, Texas. That is the Salt's Priest, the Society of Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity, and they have a very beautiful chapel down there. And so they're hosting a Monday through Friday live broadcast Mass for us, and we will be uh, playing that uh, January the 18th. You'll hear it live at 7.30 a.m. Central, 8.30 Eastern. And when that happens, uh, if you're wanting to stay a part of the Catholic Drive Time Show, well, we would love to have you. We'll just do it online, so social media at that point, on our live video streams over on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube. Uh, please, when you go to those platforms, make sure you like, subscribe, and share the, uh, the, the content there. It helps us to overcome uh, the sort of the algorithm difficulties. Now, I have to tell you, uh, with the censorship being as bad as it is right now, uh, I noticed a year ago, it was about a year ago at this time, we were getting great traction on our videos on YouTube. And then something changed and they sort of took the audience away. So it's important to us that uh, you stay connected to this Catholic Radio Apostolate. Download the mobile app. Make sure you're on the email list. Nobody likes to get uh, an email inbox full of stuff, but it is important to help us overcome the difficulties in reaching the audience. So check us out on all those platforms, but also on Rumble. Go to rumble.com, search for Catholic Drive Time. Make sure to subscribe there as well. All right? God love you and God bless you. Tomorrow we'll speak with uh, Joseph, Dr. Joseph Stewart and Sarah Cortez about writing. All of that coming up on tomorrow's Catholic Drive Time. We look forward to seeing you there, 6 a.m. Central, 7 Eastern, all across the Guadalupe Radio Network and the Stations of the Cross. It's a great pleasure and honor to bring you the news, the stories, and the inspiration. We'll see you then. God bless you, and God love you. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time, where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. 
Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you.